Biz News Power Hour. Well, there we have it. The business power are back uh, in the saddle. It's yours truly, Alec Hogg. But Justin Rowe Roberts has been minding the fort last week while uh, Stuart, Nadia, and myself were in the Drakensberg. Justin, uh, we were listening to the show. I had lots of fun, it sounds. Lots of fun, Alec. Going to miss it this week, but nice to have you guys back from the Drakensberg. I thought you said to us in the editorial meeting this morning you could you could take a little break now for a few interviews, but <laughs> well done, Justin. Good stuff. And Nadja, how did you find the Berg and its uh, clear air? Did it clear the cobwebs in the mind? It did, but it also just it reinvigorated like so much thought. So I'm looking forward to working through all the footage because there was just such incredible content. I mean, the speakers were amazing, so I'm looking forward to going through all of it. And you got all of that in on video. I've got it all. I've got it all. It's going to be quite amazing. Well, coming mm. up in the program tonight, we've also got some amazing stuff. We'll be talking to Eugene Boyson on the Cape Town Stock Exchange. What a story. Uh, it hasn't, Cape Town hasn't had a stock exchange for more than a hundred years and suddenly it's got one now. And you actually have to wonder why nobody else was bright enough to take on the Johannesburg Stock Exchange from Cape Town. Uh, it just also reflects the this immigration, not just of people, but of business as well. And then a big, big move and something that is going to shake Steinhoff shareholders to their core, or those who've been punting in Steinhoff, is the court judgment that came out today, which says they can proceed, Bernard Mostert can proceed with liquidation. Uh, and th- these guys, Techie Town, were, it's a company that was sold for a few billion rand into Steinhoff just before the uh, implosion of Steinhoff, they have been saying, we want our money back, we want our business back, please, because you guys knew it was misrepresentation, you knew that it was wrong, uh, that you were uh, defrauding us by actually paying us with paper that was worthless, and there have been any number of other vested interests who fought against it, but today uh, the Cape, the Western Cape High Court ruled in the favour uh, it was really a six-love, six-love, six-love judgment in, in favour of Bernard Mostert, but those people who've been punting on Steinhoff shares, my goodness, you are really, after this judgment, you're taking a very big risk. Uh, so we'll hear more about that from Bernard. Uh, and then, of course, this being Monday, it's David Shapiro. But uh, before we get into all of those interesting stories, uh, Stuart Lohman is with us, our managing editor, who's also freshly back from the Berg and can tell us what's been happening as far as the uh, business communities access to the websites concerns you. Excellent, thanks, Alec. Good to be back in Josie. A bit warmer from when we left, but yeah, we'll take it. Uh, just on .com, uh, most popular at the moment is Kathy Buckle. She's a Zimbabwean author, Alec. She writes the odd black blog post, and she's wrote one on contrasts in the country. And she looks at a car deal that the ministers have just uh, financed as one point one million dollars. And how that could actually be used for the World Food Program, which is across the road, you know, literally um, feeding 95,000 of the Zimbabwean people. So she looks at the contrast of of what happens, but also the enduring beauty of the country at the same time. So it's quite a nice piece. Uh, Nick Hudson from Panda, he wrote a piece on vaccinations, um, in universal versus targeted. And he obviously swings towards a targeted version um, in his piece. And then Chuck Stevens wrote a follow-on from his arrest in June and how he went to court, and there's no case that's been ta- it's been pulled from the, from the from the roster, and just hopes that this is 
seen as a domino effect for the fight against injustice. Um, so that's what's performing on .com, mm, yeah. A little bit like the public protector attack on Pumalela. The damage is done. Chuck went into jail over a long weekend, spent time uh, with the heavily COVID-infected people. I think he's, got a, he's, he's a deeply religious man, and I think he needed the big bosses, all the big bosses' protection <laughs> not to get COVID on that day. Uh, Nadia, how are the YouTube videos, uh, or which YouTube videos are being watched on Business TV? So the top video at the moment is the business interview with the risk consultant last week, Stuart Pringle, in which he spoke about the realities of the Sussrea claims and the consequences for the economy if the state-owned Sussrea is unable to pay, pay the claims timelessly. Another video that's doing well is the summary of your interview with Magnus Haystack a couple of weeks ago, actually, in which he was talking about the downsides of the investment industry, stating that it's not an, a gentleman's game. And the third video of the day is the summary of your interview with Pitful Yun, in which the profits made by vaccine-producing pharmaceutical companies was discussed, and Pete was of the opinion that they're doing a good thing and they should earn the money that they're making. Well, you wouldn't expect anything else from a rational mind <laughs> like Peter. Both Pete and Magnus are, uh, are were star performers at the conference, and Nadia, no doubt, is going to be putting those videos together in the next few days. Stu, uh, what's happening with our podcasts? On the radio side, an uh, interview Charles Werther did with Dirk van Vlaanderen from, uh, from Kegiso Asset Management. Alec, they spoke about Omni as an investment. Uh, that's obviously very popular from an agricultural point of view. Uh, I saw a piece by Wandele Sishlobe, uh, sorry, on how the rains, et cetera, should give it a big boost. So there's a lot of interest around that. Uh, the Business Power Hour from Thursday, um, hosted by uh, Justin, which is still being listened to. And then interview Justin with Stephen Nathan on the how fund-led businesses have more sort of uh, agility to take risks that sort of traditional businesses don't, which is also performing on the radio side. Bright Rock believes that with every change in life comes opportunity and the markets aren't any different. The daily movement in the markets mean change for us all, sometimes small, sometimes big. This daily market report is made just for you by Brad Rock, the first ever needs meshed life insurance that changes as your life changes. Well, that's the cue for Nadia to bring us up to date with today's news headlines. President Cyril Ramaphosa has moved to prepare the ANC for anticipated criticism in the Zondo Commission report to be published in October saying that they need to engage with and prepare themselves for implementation of the recommendations. Ramaphosa was speaking at the party's National Executive Committee, Le Khotla, on Saturday. He said that the ANC and this government will be criticized in the main due to an exaggeration of the role of the Deployment Committee and misrepresentation of its ambit, as well as for the management of the work of the, that their MPs do in Parliament and parliamentary structures. The president noted that there is a palpable feeling of anger towards and disillusionment with this government, which we must not underestimate. The people in this meeting bear the bulk of the responsibility for turning this around, and it is their collective duty to address this. South African consumer confidence ticked up in the third quarter as the reintroduction of temporary welfare measures and a public sector wage deal countered the adverse impacts of deadly riots, looting and arson that, that disrupted supply chains and put thousands of jobs at risk. The public sector wage agreement that was reached at the end of July in all likelihood bolstered the confidence levels of the more than a million civil servants in South Africa, most of whom fall in the high-income category, said Sifamandla Mkwanazi, a senior economist at FNB. And the Constitutional Court has ruled that South Africa's 2021 elections will go ahead on schedule 
and should be held no later than the 1st of November 2021. This has placed the ANC in a difficult position, analysts say, as the party has failed to register candidates in many wards. Given the Concord ruling, legal opinions say that the ANC will not be allowed to register ward candidates where they have missed the deadline in 93 wards. Justin Rowe Roberts has got the markets uh, or been watching the markets for us today. Justin? The JSE All Share Index was lower at 66,100. In the currency markets, the rand was stronger against all the major currencies to 14 rand 25 cents to the dollar, 19 rand 71 cents to the pound, and 16 rand 91 cents to the euro. Gold is slightly lower at $1,822 an ounce. A Kruger rand will cost you around 27,500 rand. Brent crude is stronger, trading at $73.10 a barrel, and Bitcoin is up over the weekend at around the 730,000 rand level. In the financial news, South African conglomerate Bidvest announced results for its 2021 financial year, with all important financial metrics well up against the prior period's figures. Bidvest announced a final dividend of 3 rand 10 cents, bringing total dividends for the 2021 financial year to 6 rand. The share is slightly lower on the local bars today. Patrice Mutsepe's mining arm, African Rainbow Minerals, produced a record result with the precious metal producer generating headline earnings per share of just over 66 rand. The miner said that it experienced tailwinds from elevated commodity prices during the period. Commodity prices have subsequently come down following the end of the financial year. The PGM miner declared a final dividend of 20 rand, bringing total dividends for the year to 30 rand. The shares were around 3% lower on the JSE today. This market report was made just for you by Bradrock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. Helen Ziller joins us now. You don't need introduction, Helen, to uh, the Biz News community or indeed anyone on Fine Music Radio listening to this. But there's been quite a lot of dramatic developments to do with the municipal elections. There was an attempt to push out the election from 27th of October, when it should, have, it should be held, uh, and to March next year. What was the rationale behind that, and why did that fail? Well, let me tell you how I see it, and I analyze situations, I watch them very closely, and then I draw my conclusions. So this is the way I and the DA see it. The ANC was not ready for an election now. It is bankrupt. Its staff are in revolt. It has had a terrible year politically. It is deeply divided, and it hadn't recruited through any kind of process. So the ANC desperately needed the election to be postponed till next year. They went through a bit of a charade of a process, etc., etc., and that culminated in the IEC applying to the Constitutional Court to declare that we couldn't hold a free and fair election at this stage because of COVID. Now, of course, earlier in the year, the IEC had said they're absolutely ready to hold the election under COVID conditions. They've been preparing for a long time and they are ready. But because they knew that they couldn't get the constitutional process, which is through Parliament, the IEC tried to get around that constraint by going to the constitutional court and having the election delayed till next year to suit the ANC. Of that, I have absolutely no doubt, and I'm sure no observer would have any doubt. The Constitutional Court heard it and said, you can't delay the election by six months, but the outside limit to which you can delay it is five days. Now, in between all of that and in between all of the applications, the ANC missed the deadline for submitting their candidates on the 23rd of August. 
And so the minute the Constitutional Court said you can delay the election for five days from the 27th of October to the 1st of November, voila. The IEC and the ANC had the gap that the ANC so desperately needed, at least to register their candidates. And the IEC said, well, this new date means that we have to have a new proclamation, that we have to issue a new timetable, and so that there will be a new deadline. And of course, that's irrelevant to everybody else who made the first deadline, but it's very relevant to the ANC. Now, you will remember that before, when the NFP and the IFP missed deadlines, they were excluded from the election. Mm. So it seems to me that there are some rules that apply to everybody except the ANC. And the ANC is always granted exemption if they mess up and don't play by the same rules that everybody else is required to play by. But what does the law say about this? And and that's really relevant because they wanted to change the date by six months. You went to the Constitutional Court and you made sure that they couldn't do that. Is there anything in law which will stop or will force the IEC to reverse uh, this little sleight of hand? Well, it's a complete sleight of hand, and it's it's just it's not coincidental. There's no doubt that this was planned for a very long time because the ANC was appealing to the electoral court to have the deadline moved, and then suddenly, with no explanation at all, they withdrew their appeal to the electoral court. So they must have been banking on the postponement of the election, we thought by six months, they didn't mind if it was even a few days, which it turned out to be, so that they could bring the sleight of hand. That was the plan all along. But there is something, and it's an unexpected something, that the ANC didn't anticipate, and I don't think the IEC did either. The EFF, in their prayers to the Constitutional Court, asked that this happen that in fact the whole timetable be reopened so people could re-register their candidates. And the Constitutional Court rejected the EFF's proposal. I think the ANC and the IC must have overlooked that, but we will certainly use, use that very strongly in our action to stop the sleight of hand. What happens if you are successful? In other words, the registration of candidates that was missed by the ANC doesn't go ahead. Reading the Sunday Times, it looks like it could be very significant in the way that the election runs out uh, on, well, now I suppose somewhere at the end of November or, uh, sorry, end of October or November 1. Yes, indeed, it is very, very significant. Uh, For example, the whole of the Western Cape. And they may win a few wards, But it basically means that they will be effectively wiped out in the Western Cape. They're gradually getting to the point of being wiped out because hardly anybody supports them anymore in this province. But it will be kind of like a nail in the coffin. The amazing thing is that in this stronghold of KwaZulu-Natal, there are only three municipalities, and I don't know which they are, in which they've registered proportional candidates. In Limpopo, there are a rash of municipalities up for grabs because the ANC hasn't uh, uh, submitted candidates. And Gauteng, the map of Gauteng, is going to look fundamentally different too. So there's a lot at stake. Uh, Helen, just one last... There's a lot at hmm, stake. One last point. The election in Zambia with the ascension of uh, HHH. HH. Yeah. Speaking with John Stenhazen a couple of weeks ago, he said it's the sister party of the DA there and that the defeated party was the sister party of the ANC. Correct. Do, do you Correct. think that, that this is starting to show that the, the tide is turning as far as this part of the world's concerned or is Zambia a little early for us? 
Well, the big choice in South Africa in the not-too-distant future is going to be the EFF or the DA. That is what this thing is panning out to be. And I've been saying that since the EFF first appeared on the scene. The ANC doesn't know where it stands on anything. The DA knows exactly where it stands. We're a party of non-racialism, the rule of law, constitutionalism, a capable state, a market economy. That's what we stand for. The EFF stands for the very opposite. Racial nationalism, socialism, the party controlling the state, the state controlling society, the dead opposite of what the DA stands for. The ANC doesn't know where they stand on any issue. They're caught in the middle and they're being torn apart as a result. So the future of politics is going to be the DA versus the EFF. And the bottom line is that people better understand that the more they splinter their votes amongst tiny little parties, the more the EFF gets to gain from it. You're listening to the BizNews Power Hour, brought to you by the team at biznews.com. Well, it's been a couple of weeks since David Shapiro has graced us with his presence. Uh, how was New York, Dave? Oh, it's coming back to life. Uh, there's still a lot of concerns there, but, um, you, you know, there were there's still... Only 80% there, 80 to 90% there. What what I found is that the tourists were missing. You know, normally if you go August, July, August during the summer months, they, it's teeming with tourism uh, from all over, from Asia, from Europe, from South America. And that was the one element that's uh, missing. Um, they are opening up this week, Broadway's reopening. And I think that's a big move, but very conscious about um, about vaccinations, very conscious about going back to school because, you know, today's Labor Day and most of the schools go back and they're still worried about um, the spread of the virus, uh, you know, in the younger community and so on. So it's, it's, it's far from normal. We, I experience a lot of normalcy, you know, or normality, but uh, I still think the world's far from, you know, being where we want it to be. It's quite a lot of debate going on here in South Africa about mandatory vaccines mm -hmm. in New York with them opening. Have they reverted to that or have they been applying that as well, forcing everyone to get vaccinated? Some of the businesses have. I think Goldman and other businesses have forced it. But, Alec, I still think there's a constitutional issue here. You know, can you force people to have a vaccine? Um, I think the one thing is when Pfizer was approved by the FDA, by the Food and Drug Administration, uh, and therefore becomes an approved drug, I think they could, um, there was some kind of uh, element where they could force that upon you and, and uh, force you to have it. But I, it, it's still, there's still a lot of uh, issues around this. There are a lot of anti-vaxxers. It's a big debatable issue. The Most of the reluctance is coming from the South you know, from some of the southern states and that where the numbers of vaccination are still very low. And that's where the concerns are. You know, the one thing I must say is every five minutes on the radio, you know, I listen to the pop radios, the top hits radios all the time, recommending go have a vaccination. And wherever you walked in New York, you could have a test or vaccination. You could literally walk across the road, sit there in five minutes and have vaccinations and that. But whether they can get that through to the population is, is, is still debatable. It is interesting to see what's happening here in South Africa as well with Discovery's Adrian Gore um, saying that everyone at Discovery has to have a vaccine, mm. otherwise they're not going to be allowed back to work. And that's evoked quite a reaction. Mm -hmm. And then you hear 
or very easy to see on the BBC website, one of the radio producers, 44 years old, had a vaccine and died of a blood clot. Mm. She is one of 500 or whatever who have died out of the 20 million who've been vaccinated. So I suppose it's always a question of if there's one mm. person who dies from a vaccine, mm. then there is going to be criticism of it. Mm. And there's going to be those who are scared and don't want to be vaccinated as mm. a consequence. There are plenty of anti-vaxxers. If you wanted a conference of anti-vaxxers, you'll find them. You know, I'm not. I don't think we should. I I believe in it. You know, um, it's certainly points towards less pressure on the hospitals. I wanted. There's another very important lesson I learned there as well. I went up to Boston, which you know is a big medical area, and um, spoke to a lot of doctors. And first of all, on the elective. They're getting very busy. People are coming back for elective surgery. So, in fact, they have to keep people out of clinics. There's so many coming back. So the doctors are under a lot of pressure. But their big issue is uh, they're very concerned about ICU and about finding enough skills. I think those, those nurses or the nursing staff and medical staff that work through the, you know, through the uh, um, COVID you know, through the worst of the period, are not going to come back. I think they are so mentally drained, so physically drained, that they're very nervous that they won't have enough people uh, volunteering for those positions and going through what they they went through. So I think against that as well, there's a a big campaign to say, look, you know, by having vaccines, you reduce the the chances of death, you reduce the chances of having being being admitted, sorry, to ICU. But it's it it is an issue. It's a big concern about the, the you know the skills, whether whether they'll have skills. In fact, overall, that that the whole subject of public health is going to be debated and talked about for a long time. You know, because I think when we do the post mortem of of this pandemic, you'll find that governments and uh, and the pub and and the uh, public health sector were just not prepared and ready for it. Uh, in terms of testing, in terms of everything. It's interesting the point that you make there, Dave, because mm. uh, in over the weekend, the Financial Times of London were telling mm. us how they are going to be promoting financial literacy. But yes. the point that you're making is literacy of our public health systems because mm. there's there's so much confusion uh, caused, uh, I'm sure, that a lot of it is through ignorance and through well-intentioned and and then you get all kinds of stuff that's being... Um, generated on social media now, and depending on who you told or who you who you respect, uh, you might have a different opinion. But mm. I, I'm really hoping that uh, we can get you to come and present at our next uh, business conference in March next year, yeah. uh, because uh, this conference we had quite a f- we had a few actually surgeons and intervists, mm. uh, uh, and one of them stood up in the conversation and during question time and said. He works in uh, Somerset West in a hospital there. He says of the 400 people who died of, and he works in the ICU, of the 400 people who died in his ICU, only one had been vaccinated. So it's mm-hmm. the, the evidence is overwhelming. And we had uh, Emil Stipp from Discovery, the chief actuary, on the program a couple of weeks ago. And he's gone through all the NHI in the UK K in uh, NHS rather than the UK numbers and of course Discovery's own numbers and he said and it was really interesting for me to hear this number that if you get 
if you haven't been vaccinated, your chances of dying of COVID relative to flu is, is well, 2,000 out of 100,000 as against 200. So it's 10 times higher. However, if you are vaccinated, your chances of dying are 40 as against 200. So in other words, 40% uh, relative to getting flu, let alone uh, getting uh, COVID mm. itself. So it seems as though the evidence, the data is overwhelming. Mm. Yet people are, uh, are objecting <laughs> yeah. on, on uh, freedom of choice grounds and, and all kinds of other issues. We need, we need more conversation, but more communication. Mm. Mm. And I think, I think businesses are right. I know that Adrian is taking stick, you know, for discovery and other businesses. But I think I, I think he's right. I think uh, he has to force this upon uh, people. But and David, also, what happens when he mm. has one death? What happens when he has one person of his staff, one member of yeah. his staff, who does get a blood clot? And um, that's, that's yeah, a massive I, I, risk I, I, that you, you're taking by forcing everybody to have yeah. the vaccines. And yeah. they I mean, it, it, it's mm-hmm. a tiny, tiny, tiny percentage mm-hmm. and a tiny mm-hmm. chance of it happening. So I don't know. I think he's very brave to be doing what he's doing and, and all companies that are doing that. Mm-hmm. Because, as I say, on the BBC, one of their, their radio, mm-hmm. one of their radio producers from mm-hmm. Newcastle in the north of England, and mm-hmm. it's all over the BBC website. She got a vaccine mm-hmm. and she died of a blood clot. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it's, it's those mm-hmm. isolated instances that, uh, mm-hmm. you know, that to her family, mm-hmm. yeah. People, people say, if, if, I don't want that to happen to me. It's a difficult thing. <laughs> Alec, we're all learning. You know, we're all learning something. There's no rule book and there was no playbook. And I think it's, we're going through, uh, certainly in my lifetime, one of the most difficult periods. I'm not talking financially. I'm talking, um, you know, from a community point of view, just an interrelationship point of view. I, I, I just saw when I, I was in Boston with family, when I was in New York, um, just how good it was to sit down in a restaurant or sit around the table with people, with kids, because no matter how you try and communicate with your grandchildren over FaceTime, there's nothing like sitting down or going for a walk with a dog with them and learning about more about them. And I think we've missed out, you know, on that. And we've been robbed of it. We've been robbed of a lot of things. I'm not, there's no, when I say robbed, I mean through the pandemic, it's nobody's fault but you realize how your lives have changed and uh, whatever route we get to normality, I'm, I'm happy to take it, you know, the easiest and less costly. But I think I, so much is going to be discussed when we, when things do settle down. And I, I'm a big one on, on public health, uh, you know, the testing facilities and, and, and issues like that. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's monstrous doing these things when you travel it's it's such a burden it's it's not i it's it's when i say a burden it's a whole learning thing you know having to go for the test sit there for hours and wait for the results and then submit these to the airline and so on you know just there's so many added issues when you do travel now did you have to isolate when you arrived no, in the us no 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 but not I like was, the uk then no i was i was very fortunate when i say fortunate it was hard work but uh, i just uh, um, you know, I was I was very lucky to get a visa that allowed me to to go through, but I had to submit tests, and um, you know I had to go through that both both ways. Going funny, I've been vaccinated. That no one asked me for if uh, for the vaccination side of it, but uh, only when we came home they did. But Alec, I've got to tell you, as a as as and I mean you're quite savvy when it comes to touching buttons and when it comes to um, 
working on the internet. But as an elderly person, I mean, you know, as, as an older person, today, when you travel in the US, when you travel in the UK, everything is online now. <laughs> There's no, in, in other words, if you, if you don't know how to check in online, if you don't know how to upload your COVID tests upline, you know, online and submit these things, choose your seats, all of these kind of things, it's, it's so difficult. And just lining up in Newark, you know, which is the hub of United Airlines, that's how I came. And you line up there with lots of people behind you, people with baggage, people going to all kinds of areas of the world. And you're confronted there and you get in front of the screen and it says, what's your reference number? And say, oh, I forgot, you know, and you've got to quickly look it up and you've got people badgering. And then you just hope that along the line, everything's going smoothly. And finally, you print your tickets, your, your, your boarding tickets plus your baggage tickets. And there's no one there to ask, you know, and a chap comes around and he sees them there and he says, which are your cases? And he puts them on and you just hope to hell your baggage eventually arrives where you're going. But it's all, you know, that's the world we live in today. Everything is, is, is digital, technical. And for older people who are not familiar, it's a nightmare for them. And we mm. in South Africa are still quite a bit behind. And I, mm. I now push mm. that forward to mm. investing. Mm. Do you think we've taken account yet in South Africa of the investments, uh, well, that our stocks on the on the JSE have actually taken account because if as a society mm. we're not doing that, you can still go and check in your bags, for instance, uh, well, when you can fly uh, at the baggage counter at where the, the ladies will check you in. And mm. as you say, in most parts of the world now, or in the first world, mm. you can't do that. If you still have that system, mm. perhaps that's being reflected uh, or hasn't been the, the new world hasn't been fully reflected in our stocks yet. Do, do you think that's no. there's a case for I, that? I, when I spoke to Justin last week, we were talking about. I said to him, the difference between here in South Africa and in the U.S. When I sat round the table with some very smart people, and uh, the whole conversation was towards progress. You know where things are happening. Uh, it, it was building things and understanding where the world's going. And when you come back here, and even when we discuss results, many of them are old economy stocks. You know, we're talking mm. about grocery mm. stores. Or talk, you, know, mm. yeah. you, you know what I mean? And, and, I said to, and I said to Justin, we've got to change the conversation now. We've got to get our young people. They want it, you know, to start thinking about, how the world is changing, how digitization is changing everything we do. How does business empower our nation? By bringing produce to our tables, giving us technology that connects us, hospitals that care for us, and the tools that shape our cities. And by backing the next generation of business owners. That's why... South Africa banks on business. Business banks on us. Standard Bank. It can be. Standard Bank is an authorized financial services and registered credit provider. T's and C's apply. Bernard Mostert is the co-founder and former chief executive of Techie Town, which was pulled into the whole Steinhoff debacle when their company was sold, or when the company was sold to Steinhoff just before the implosion uh, of that business. Uh, today has been a very big day in uh, the life of Steinhoff shareholders, but more particularly in the life of the vendors. 
And Bernard, you've been incredibly instrumental in making this happen. You wanted the liquidation of Steinhoff, as you've told us uh, on, at various occasions over the past few months. Before we go into what the court found, just tell us why you wanted Steinhoff to be liquidated. Yeah, and, um, and I think it is, it's important to recognize that um, we don't have a liquidation order yet. I mean, effectively, the ruling by Justice Slinger's um, allows us to proceed with our liquidation application. Um, last week, we spent three fairly exhausting days in court, um, and we heard on three matters. The first was um, the attempted entry of the financial creditors, the, the um, people who bought the distressed debt after the revelation of the fraud. They wanted to join and oppose the liquidation bid. Um, their application to join was dismissed with costs. Then there was an application from the two Dutch administrators who um, also wanted to join in opposition to the liquidation bid, and their um, attempt to join was also dismissed with costs. And then finally, there was quite a, a long um, and intense debate as to whether South Africa would have the necessary jurisdiction to um, liquidate an external company. You know, now it's easy to assume that it's logical that Steinhoff was a South African entity that went offshore. Most of the fraud occurred in the entity before it went to the Netherlands. Um, and as a result, you know, there was a big debate as to whether South African courts, and specifically the Western Cape High Court, would have the right to proceed in hearing as to whether the company can be liquidated. And that point was also ruled in our favor, um, again, with costs. So on Thursday, the show gets on the road, so to speak, when um, ourselves and Jan Lamprecht, another party that is intervening in um, support of the liquidation, gets to be heard um, in the Western Cape High Court. And at this stage, it will run from this coming Thursday until the 20th of September, over various dates, not continuously. You mentioned with costs. For those who don't understand the legal process, that's like losing a tennis match, love six. Yeah, I don't know. How to, listen, in the last four years, I've become a lot more adept to litigation. Um, I'm just I'm grateful that the cost order went in our favor. Um, these processes aren't cheap, and, and you know we have obviously been fighting a long and hard fight or something that seems to be fairly logical. I think quite a lot of people um, have accepted that we were defrauded. Still a few people that oppose it, but um, just the amount of money that we've had to spend in order to be heard and be in a court is significant. You know, So the cost orders from that perspective do help. So the, the in other words, included in those who didn't want you to proceed with the liquidation of Steinhoff, were the financial creditors. Now, we have spoken about this in the past, but please recap that for us. How did the financial creditors get involved and who are they? Yeah, well, the, the who are they is, is a part of what was what was a big debate last week because um, the argument was that they were not properly identified. But to take you to the beginning, um, so Steinhoff goes along merrily um, from... 2008 or 2009, it has various lenders 
that provides finance to the company, very much like how you and I would apply for a bond if we needed one or for a form of finance or business, a general banking facility in our businesses. And then um, Steinel fails to publish its financial results. Marcus Uester resigns. The company announces that there were accounting irregularities and that they will be launching a forensic investigation. At that time, most of the, arguably all, of the creditors who had instruments in which Steinhoff owed their money sold those instruments at discounts. Um, the Central Bank of Europe was one held some of the, the Steinhoff bonds, and they sold them at a discount, and these were bought um, predominantly by hedge funds, um, and hedge funds who specialize in distressed debt opportunities. So it's not the typical person from whom you would get a bond, you know, or a general banking facility. And they then struck a deal with Steinhoff's management in which effectively, seemingly, they said, we hold this debt. We need to restructure it. Um, the debt was euro-denominated. And um, in order to make you keep going and not to bring actions against you, we want a new interest rate, 10%, which is astronomical for Europe. And um, we want to be paid 100 cents of, of what the original debt was. You know, regardless of whether we bought it for 10 cents, 20 cents, 30 cents, we want to get 10% interest and we want to get the full amount. So, and then you have a situation where they come and they say, we are supposedly the single biggest creditor. We won't be compromised in this process. Um, as a matter of fact, this process will be exceptionally profitable for us. Um, but yet we want to vote that others are compromised. Ourselves, Christo Visser, um, the many shareholders that um, had money with Alan Gray and um, the institutional investors, etc., all compromised. Um, essentially uh, prejudiced at the hands of these financial creditors. So the bulk of Steinhoff's debt today is this supposed debt pile, which I think at the one hand still needs to be crystallized, and then all the people like ourselves, Dr. Visser, etc., who put money into Steinhoff by way of putting their businesses and their life work into it, um, and for for what for something that wasn't so. Mm-hmm. So these are well, I suppose some people call them vulture funds in a. Uh in a less uh, flattering perspective, but they've now been shown the door. What happens next? You've got the Steinhoff share price, which has been bouncing all over the place. If you are successful in having the company liquidated, what happens to those people who own Steinhoff shares? Alec, to be perfectly honest, I don't know. Um, I do know that the vast majority of Steinhoff shareholders seemingly are people who dabbled and invested in the share post the revelations of the fraud. And I guess to some degree, you have to accept that that was a risk that those people took, you know, because it's a, hopefully at some point we will get past the point where somebody says there wasn't fraud. It was just 106 billion rand accounting oopsie um, and, and the like, you know, so um it's very difficult for me to comment on what will happen to the Steinhoff share price because I think Steinhoff 
immediately after the revelations, one or two analysts referred to Steinhoff as uninvestable, which is an interesting term. You know, it's usually buy, sell, or hold. And all of a sudden, we saw this fourth term called uninvestable. So it is, you know, I think quite a lot of people hope that the settlement would go through. Some of them maybe because they don't want to see the inside of a courtroom. Others because they stood to make a large profit. Um, but our goal has always been pretty clear. You know, we, we're not afraid for, to see the inside of a courtroom. We pursue what we believe is right. Um, and and the, the reality is that even on the company's own admission, there was a significant fraud. So you need to split the fraud and the proceeds of the fraud from one another. And, the, and, and really what we're talking about now is the proceeds of the fraud. And the end game for you is to get your business back. Yeah, yeah, you know, the end game for us is to cancel the contract that we were induced into. And cancelling that contract would uh, restore our controlling interest in our business to us. I'm not a lawyer. I did do Com Law 1, and I remember from those days that there was something called misrepresentation, uh, which was a very strong argument uh, in cancelling a contract. Is that what you're going for, that they, you, you, were, it, you were misrepresented by Steinhoff, and as a result of that, the contract to sell the business or that you sold the business to them is null and void. Yes, absolutely, yeah. And we we just take it one step further. We said that there was fraudulent misrepresentation. So, so it all starts on Thursday and goes on until mid-September. When are you likely to have a judgment on this? And indeed, once that comes out, were it to go in your favor, what happens then? Well, you know, what what would happen if we are successful ultimately is that Steinhoff would be put in the hands of curators, liquidators appointed by the uh, master of the high court. And I think what's interesting then is we can really get into what exactly transpired. You know, we can get, we can have a section 417 inquiry, we can have witnesses called, and South Africa can see exactly what happened behind the scenes to cause this huge stain on, on our corporate um, reputation. You know? So that is effectively a successful liquidation that would remove the control of Steinhoff from the existing management and board and put it in the hands of people who are, A, mandated to treat all creditors fairly and, B, who are mandated to investigate exactly what went wrong. And I, and I think we, we would all welcome that. Uh, any progress on the investigation that has done, been done by PwC? Uh, that I know that you've been asking for it. People like Marcus Eusta has been asking for it as well. Yet PwC and the existing managers of Steinhoff have been resisting disclosing that. Any progress or update on on the on the release of that? Um. To answer your question in short, no, no progress in terms of actually having it been released. But Jan Lamprecht in his papers supporting the liquidation bid um, did make reference to the fact that Steinhoff quite often relies on the contents of the PwC report. And he's um, now brought a process in which he asks that Steinhoff delivers the PwC report as part of the documentation that is uh, that is required in terms of the action that we're currently going through. So it will be interesting to see um, if this is the way in which the PwC report comes out into the open. Uh, 
Um, and again, you know, I think people will be very interested to see um, who did what, how did they do it, and what led to this, you know, massive fraud. It's an extraordinary story and one that has got uh, still a little while to run. But from what happened with the judgment that was released today, it appears as though your whole strategy is very much on track. Is there anything that could derail it from you? Um, Alec, listen, I mean, we've seen so many stratagems and, and, um, and uh, outcomes that has been effectively, in our view, delay tactics. So you, you never know what people come up with. You know, when, when the original fraud was, was contemplated or discussed in discovery, Steinhoff came out and they said they will leave no stone unturned to make sure that there's prosecution and that all the wrongs are righted. But that didn't turn out to be true. You know, so it's, it's difficult to make a comment along those lines in terms of what will happen. Um, you know, we just, we, we continue to fight for what we believe is right. We know we're not wrong. Um, and it's a, and we trust the system. You're listening to the Biz News Power Hour, brought to you by the team at biznews.com. Eugene Boyson is, uh, well, the chief executive of what used to be called 4AX, uh, now is going to be called the Cape Town Stock Exchange. Eugene, uh, this is a big move, a big decision. Um, certainly, on the one hand, it seems like just a rebranding exercise. But on the other hand, you are relocating your whole team to Cape Town. That's correct, Alex. It's been a, it's been a work in progress the last two years. Uh, we had a couple of focus areas, one on the underlying technology, second on the underlying platform. And now we need to work on the underlying brand and that brand recognition. There was a lot of confusion in the market. There were four alternate exchanges from the JSCs, AlterX, A2X, Zarex, and 4AX. I think it created a huge amount of confusion between investors, brokers, um, and the market and market participants in general. This gives us a massive opportunity to, to relaunch, make a huge investment in the brand, and more importantly, align with the mother city and its technology drive and innovation drive. Are you going to have your own building in Cape Town? So we're moving to the Woodstock Exchange in Woodstock in Cape Town. And just by fortuitously, it would have it right opposite the building is the Cape Town, is uh, the Stock Exchange Hotel. So it just worked out like that. <laughs> Was there a Stock Exchange there in a bygone era? Uh, I think there must have been. So from our research, there was actually a Stock Exchange in Cape Town in 1901. And it was a response to the Anglo-Boer War and then closed down in 1906 once the war ended. So what is the Cape Town Stock Exchange going to have that the Johannesburg Stock Exchange doesn't? So, Alec, we focused heavily on our underlying technology. And why did we focus on the technology? I think it's important that companies become information-based. And secondly, it's given us a, a, a big leg up in terms of being able to cater for the, the SMEs, mid-sized corporate, small-cap stocks. So anyone with the market capitalization between 25 and $2 billion, um, it's really hard to target them. The cost of a listing is not just what a listing costs you in, in, in rands and cents. Everything that happens afterwards in terms of transparency, disclosures, virtual AGMs, managing shareholders, um, the additional loads related to disclosures and audit requirements and how you report. The exchange has been set up to, 
to help you through that listing progress and uh, listing process, help underlying sponsors and JSC sponsors take you through it. And more importantly, we have our registry business that can handhold you through all those additional disclosure requirements. We think with that, we can save you a huge amount of money in terms of cost, risk, time and complexity. 25 million. That's not big. That's that opens the door to, as you mentioned before, SMEs. It, uh, I remember when I listed MoneyWeb, uh, short was in the internet boom. Uh, we were capitalized at 75 million and then we went rapidly up to 150 million rand. At our worst point, we were worth more than 25 million rand. So it, it seems to me as though it would open to many, many uh, fledgling businesses. I think you hit the nail on the head. I think we, if we, we can't keep paying lip service to, to SME development. We can't keep paying lip service to, to growth in the underlying SA economy. We're serious about targeting growth companies. We're serious about helping entrepreneurs. Then we need to bring ourselves down to where the entrepreneurship occurs, right? And those companies in that, in that bracket, they're the ones that are driving underlying economic growth, job creation, innovation, manufacturing capacity in the economy. Um, our asset managers always tell me they're looking for the underlying growth. I don't think growth comes with the 250 billion counter. Growth comes finding the growth sector in the economy and partnering with it. We want to, we want to unleash that sector. Uh, we think it's ripe. We've done the market research and analysis. We think it's a two trillion, two trillion market sector. And right now, only 15% of them being covered by the JSC. Again, using my own experience, when we did list the company, we had to go through quite a lot of loops. We needed a sponsoring broker. We needed a uh, investment bank to put it all together. It it was a real long process to to get to market in the first place. Have you streamlined that with the Cape Town Stock Exchange? I think we have. We've looked looked long and hard at underlying listing rules. We've tried to make them really friendly for underlying issues, but at the same time keeping all the underlying investor protections in place. Um, we've got a a seamless process to onboard sponsors and listing agents, as we call them, that can handhold their clients through that underlying process. And we've got fairly well laid out mechanisms to deal with the different classes of companies and structures and in terms of how we can emancipate them for, for that listing. And more importantly, that listing is not just equity. We're able to list your debt and we have the unlisted debt marketplace. So there's three three tiers in the capital formation that we're able to help you with and assist you with. So not just listing your equity, but potentially listing your debt. And as a last resort, even getting your unlisted debt away that we can hopefully reduce the underlying cost of capital. And what's the cost of actually listing, starting with equity? It's 0.1% of your market capitalization. That's approximately a third of what's currently being charged by the JSC. So somebody who has a 25 million rand business, uh, is not going to be shown the door. In fact, they're going to be let in there. I'm just trying to work it out quickly in my head. What is 0.1% of 25 million rand? It doesn't sound so like it's, it's not light at all. So you're talking 25,000 rand to get yourself through the door. There's certain documentary components. And we've got Cape Town Stock Exchange Capital Solutions that can take you through a digital process to onboard your company, take you through the complexity associated with getting yourself ready for a listing, and also reducing the complexity in terms of your discussion with your issuer agent or with your sponsor. So that most of the information is already pre-prepared, and you can the listing agent and sponsor at a much lower cost can get you through the real technicalities of getting ready for a listing, like MIR requirements, the resolutions that need to be passed. So um, that process, we learned a lot from how to, how to take unlisted debt to the marketplace. 
what happens in credit scoring processes, and we've now applied that to to digital direct listing. And the running costs or keeping your listing going, I recall again with my own experience, it was taking it costing us about a million rand a year just to stay listed. Uh, what will it be on your exchange? So, Alec, you still have certain of the ancillary listing costs in terms of competition commission um, requirements, and there, there are also some additional requirements in terms of your, your auditors that they may charge you slightly marginally higher related to that listing. But we've got, a, we've got the registry business. Our registry business was set up since inception. We've, already, we've got nine JSC-listed companies who also make use of those services now. Um, that business helps you manage your underlying shareholder register, your, your shareholders. Um, it takes you through all your underlying governance, disclosure requirements. We can even help you with your, your AGMs, help you with your board meetings, your minuting requirement, any of your transfer secretarial activity. And more importantly, we can, we can even host your underlying virtual AGMs, proxy solicitation, online voting and e-voting. And numerous JC listed companies have used those services over the past year. We've had no issues with our underlying virtual AGMs and those costs are it's a significantly lower cost than what, what exists in the marketplace. And we manage those registers um, at, at, at a fraction of the cost, and it's all integrated into the service. Have uh, organizations like Westgrow or even the Cape Town City um, shown you the red carpet? Are they, are they helping you to, or did they encourage you to create uh, the city's exchange, which is more, it's more than 100 years, as you mentioned earlier, since they had one? That's, that's correct. Um, I think there, there are a couple of things that happen. I think, first of all, everyone, everyone sits back rather with shock and amazement and wonders why no one ever thought of it. I think that's the first thing that, that strikes them. Secondly, is there's, they first ent- then they entertain the possibility, is it a gimmick? But it's not. There's some, real, there's some real science behind why we chose Cape Town Stock Exchange as a name. And then you hit the nail on the head, Alec. They've been massively supportive. The Western Cape government, Westgrow as an organisation, and the city of Cape Town have, have, have really gone out of their way to, to accommodate us um, and, and allow us to achieve, achieve this in a, in a fairly short period of time. And you're looking forward to leaving the Haarfeld to uh, live in Cape Town. I suppose it, it, it seems to be a bit of a trend nowadays. Now, now we're seeing perhaps the companies would be moving to a Cape Town exchange as well. Do, what do the JSE think about this? So I, I don't know what the JSC thinks about it. And I, obviously, we, we, we're quite aware of being pulled into this emigration debate. Um, as I always say to people, I must be the last Gauteng nationalist left behind. Um, I've, been in, I've been in Gauteng for almost 50 years, and I, I, I'm fairly comfortable here. But it, for us, it's a, it's a natural progression for the business. And it just made all the underlying commercial sense. And just the reception and the uptake related to issues and our existing clients just reinforces that. We we think it's the we think it's the right uh, the right move. And Eugene, I know you as a person who looks into the future. We met uh, when the Singularity University faculty came to South Africa. When uh, you and Stephen von Koller were intimately involved in making them uh, welcome here and and letting their message of exponential companies being being shared amongst South Africans. Did that play a part in this? That and particularly your focus area now. You mentioned Silicon Cape. You mentioned tech companies. It, I would love, and I'm sure many South Africans would love to be able to find themselves some exponential companies or potential exponential companies to invest in. Is that part of the whole thinking? I mean, do you go back, uh, what's it, nearly five years to, to what happened there is maybe a trigger point to where you are today? 
I think it's very important catalyst in terms of how I think about think about the company, think about the the world, think about the future we're going into. Um, I, if South Africa is serious about growth, if Africa is serious about growth, we have to begin to bring our economies to the point where they become information based, and that's that's what not just what we're doing in terms of the companies, what we're doing in terms of skills development, etc. And the policy environment itself has to catch up to that underlying information-based economy as well. And I think this is this is the first step in terms of that direction. The second thing is you have to get a digital-first mindset. Um, can you codify everything that you're doing? And then lastly, is you know, it's easy to, it's easy to lose sight of the underlying client. Um, and I I think for ourselves, it's been two years of focusing on the digital, focusing on the operations. And this has now given us the opportunity where we can really go out there and focus on the client as we as we launch the exchange. But um, people have often asked me why the exchange. And we looked at the when we put the team together in November 2019, we looked at an underlying exchange and actually try to answer the question, could we build investment banking 4.0? We saw it was happening in retail banking. We saw it was happening in commercial banking. And we said, well, why can't the same level of disruption occur in investment banking? And um, what is the platform that would that could do it? And we looked to exchanges and we thought, you know what? Exchange already provides the platform for trading securities. You're already doing the underlying betting for companies. They're looking to raise underlying capital, funding, and unlisted debt. And more importantly, you're managing all their disclosure and you're managing their, their, their shareholders. And could you create a technology backbone that allowed you to release this investment bank 4.0 on the market? And for us, that's what Cape Town Stock Exchange is. It's an investment banking 4.0. Fast forward five years, we think this is how investment banks are, are operating. And Easy Equities, uh, we know they're a massive player now in the retail market uh, through particularly fa- fractional investing. Will they have a license with you? In other words, if... Uh, Biz News talks about a Cape Town Stock Exchange listed company. Would people at Easy Equities be able to put their hundred bucks and buy a few shares? Um, Alex, that is on the card. So um, we, uh, the exchange made a big mistake when they initially launched. Most of the alternative exchanges launched with a single custodian. That meant they were really closed systems. They couldn't open themselves up to, to, to broad-based participation in terms of brokers, custodians, banks. Um, we launched open market on the 23rd of August this year, and that was precisely around integrating with all the underlying bank custodians in the market. And what it's allowed us to do is open the exchange up to, to any of the brokers currently operating on the JSC and brokers operating outside of the JSC. So we'll be aggregating up brokers just as we'll be aggregating up issuers over the in the near future. Easy Equity is definitely on the cards. They definitely live out that digitized, democratized, demonetized um, and they, they, they tap into a very important neglected subset up until now, which is bottom of the pyramid, small fractional investment. Um, and they've opened that up and definitely made the big steps in terms of democratizing finance. Um, but it's, it's not just them. We, we, we're creating a much higher degree of institutional access as well. And we've also, you'll see announcements around uh, seriously big institutional brokers as well over the next, over the next few weeks. Thanks for being with us this Monday, the 6th of September. We look forward to being back in your company again, same time, same place, tomorrow. Until then, cheerio. You've been listening to the Power Hour, brought to you by the team at Biz News.